Hello, my name is Adam Elliott and I'm the very overrated director of Harvey Crumpet and Mary Max. And you're listening to 3CR. And 3CR's Renegade Economist is on yet again here with Carl Fitzgerald, your host. And we're going to start off commenting a bit about last week's high-profile interview with Saul Eslake where he talked about uh, all of the myths of negative gearing and why it must be reformed. And uh, over the last few days, it has been absolute pandemonium in a way because uh, the Property Council of Australia has launched the Don't Play With Housing campaign. They've got an elaborately funded radio and TV um, series of ads that are out there spruiking the fact that uh, government should get their hands off negative gearing and don't you dare touch it. And remember a couple of weeks ago that the Australian Electoral Commission released the f- donations uh, totaled up from 18 months ago. Huge time lag on that, but uh, they found that the property interests were very prominent in their donations, as always, some $2.4 million. But uh, a couple of days after that, the Property Council was out saying, look, don't touch negative gearing. Now, must have heard the back chatter that uh, Bill Shorten was going to do something, perhaps even the Libs were. Well, the Liberal Party's been all over the place since um, uh, Shorten's been out with this quite uh, a direct policy change to limit negative gearing to new housing and to also uh, halve the capital gains tax discount. And of course, uh, Turnbull, our Prime Minister, is on the back foot trying to figure a way to placate his major donors alongside his party supporters. And, and the, realis- the realism of uh, the government struggling to, to meet its budget uh, requirements. So uh, with all this going on, I just had to do it, guys. I just had to get a petition out. So uh, check change.org. Yes, change.org for reform negative gearing now. Now and search my name, Carl Fitzgerald. You'll find uh, the petition there. I'll put it up on the show notes tomorrow. But uh, uh, seriously, we need to raise pressure on both sides of politics to get serious. If housing is our number one financial priority each and every week, then why isn't it government's number one priority to make housing affordable? So uh, please sign that petition and share it with your networks Uh, I'd love to see thousands of people on that list so we can really um, prove that uh, there are more people concerned about negative gearing than there are rent seekers trying to protect the easy money they make through negative gearing. So if you've had a gut full of being moved out of your home, um, please spend five seconds uh, signing this petition, sharing it with your friends and telling your story on how many times you've been moved out of a property because your landlord wants to sell the property and they recognise that because prices are jumping some 60 or grand a year um, over the last four or five years, then uh, there's no way that the rents you're paying now will be justified by the new price. So the, the owner is forced to jack the rents up again and they just would prefer to do that with fresh tenants. So uh, wherever you look, the primary issues of the Renegade Economist radio show are glaring at us in the headlines. And uh, yesterday we had the big announcement from uh, Rio Tinto, sorry, from BHP that uh, basically the mining boom was over. So let's slide on over to today's interview. Hopefully you can remember to get onto that petition. 
This week on The Renegade Economist, we're joined by Kevin Morrison. He's a journalist at Argus Media. They're a business-to-business type subscription group, and he's doing his Master's in Resource Rent Taxes at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, UTS. And I met Kevin last year at the Global Eco Taxes Conference in Sydney, and uh, he's an interesting character. So, Kevin, great to have you on the show. The big news in the world of mining, of course, is that here we are on February 24th, 2016, and the great mining boom is officially over with BHP cutting their dividend by 75% yesterday. That's a huge, huge reference point to where the the state of the mining market is. How did you read those findings? Well, I guess the dividend cut, I mean, that, that was all based on a, a progressive dividend, i.e. Uh, for BHP to, to increase its dividend, its absolute dividend uh, year on year. But uh, bearing in mind... It, it's a miner. It operates in the resource sector. The resources sector is a cyclical industry, and so therefore, profits go up and down. It's all dictated by by commodity prices, which are which are formed on markets, and uh, markets go up and down. So, you know, to to base the uh, the premise on a, a progressive dividend, uh, you know, that may be more akin to, to what the uh, the banks and some other industrial companies do, but it, it's kind of never really worked, as far as I know, in, in the resources sector. Well, it is a, a huge turnaround because for 30 years, BHP has prided themselves on providing uh, extensive dividends to their investors and now that the tide has turned they've they've announced a, a fir- they've posted a first half loss of 5.7 billion dollars uh, usually uh, they're, they're posting some uh, uh, six to eight billion dollar profit according to recent trends so uh, is this a a fault of the company or of the fact that the market has responded to such extensive profits and more and more supply has been pumped out? Well, I guess there's two things that I took away from the result. Uh, one, just focusing on, on, on the dividend. Even though it was a, it was a, a very large cut, uh, I mean, it, it was pretty much um, a, a, a cut that, 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 that was well factored in because, you know, the market's saying, well, look, you know, how can BHP continue to, to pay higher dividends because uh, it would almost exceed its actual, actual earnings, uh, you know, it, Therefore, be looking to to borrow money to, in order to just uh, to pay the, the, this dividend. So, yeah, that that doesn't seem like a prudent way to to, to manage the, the company. Uh, bearing in mind, you know, it's it's still um, to, to manage its capital in order to, to to reinvest in in projects because you have to do it as a miner because you know your mines are going to run out of ore or they're going to run out of gas or, or, or oil. Um, and so they, they've said with the dividend, I mean, they're going to maintain the payout ratio of about 50%. So effectively, 50% of the profit will still go back to, to shareholders, which I guess if you're a BHP shareholder, uh, you would have to be happy with that. Um, but uh, at, at the same time, the uh, you know when we, when we talk about the um, the actual loss, if you if you look at where the loss came from, it, is, it really affected the uh, the write down in the in the asset value, and that was um, largely its onshore U.S. Uh, shell assets. Now, if we go back 
like, uh, you know, why do they write this down? Well, they wrote it down because uh, they simply bought this this asset uh, back in 2010, 2011, uh, you know, when there was a lot of excitement about U.S. shale. This is um, it was a structural change in in the uh, the oil market. And uh, valuations for those assets were were pretty much. If we look back now, they're pretty much at the peak. So uh, you know, BHP, they've done this before in other markets. They uh, they seem to sort of buy at the peak, have a massive write down. They're a big company. They can they can uh, swallow this write down. But you know, if you look at the underlying operations, they're still making lots of money from from their iron ore operations in in the Pilbara. And I think if you look at the the oil and gas, uh, strip out the uh, the one off losses. They're, they're still making money for, from that as well, particularly the, the oil, not, maybe not so much the, the onshore gas in the US. When you talk in that manner uh, about the shale boom and what happened there, so much of that was, in fact, a land boom. And uh, there was so much money made by insiders who understood that uh, this new technology had opened up a whole pile of new oil fields and uh, there are a couple of people around who who made uh, a lot of money and and so one of George Bush's uh, good buddies, Trevor Reese Jones, made seven deals in seven years for seven billion dollars. After uh, decades of struggling as an uh, as an oil miner, he decided, look, uh, buying the the land in the right location and selling it at in these boom times was a, was a much better option. And so uh, he's now celebrated in uh, Forbes' richest people as, as a very astute investor. And of course, really, what he's done is been that middleman who's helped push up prices that um, has forced companies such as BHP jumped in at the wrong time on and now they're having to write down those books uh, as all this added supplies come onto the market so the the land price has has really hurt BHP but that's correct I mean I, I guess you know um, we can also look at a similar okay it wasn't nowhere near the scale that that occurred in uh, in uh, Texas and Louisiana in, in regards to the uh, the US shale but uh, we had a sort of mini boom in, in Queensland with the uh, with the coal seam gas um, you know a lot of those acreage shoes were looked at by the, uh, the by the bigger oil and gas companies uh, a couple of decades ago they thought well this is never going to work and then uh, some local uh, entrepreneurs got in they, they built up all, all the tenements and uh, when you see the, uh, the early deals that, that were done in, in the coal seam gas uh, this is almost going back about 10 years ago um, this when the, the likes of Santos uh, started buying in a lot of money again was sort of made by the uh, the, the land uh, speculators because it was covering vast areas and there was a lot of money to, to be made because it was all on the promise. Uh, the oil price was going up, and uh, virtually any anywhere that had any uh, hydrocarbons was uh, was going to be of value. But now, that, uh, I guess what's happened in the oil market, the biggest uh, change in the oil market is, um, you know, the Saudis uh, are acting like any other uh, rational oil producer in the, in, in the market sense, where where they're uh, trying to maintain market share instead of. Um, trying to uh, you know just trying to, to, to keep the uh, supplies tight and, and prices up.
And that's been important, hasn't it? Because some have read that as uh, a battle line they've drawn against the US shale boom and uh, trying to undercut those prices because so many shale producers have this land overhead repayment. The Saudis have a comparative advantage. They can access their oil comparatively cheaply. And uh, now we've got Iran uh, re-entering the market after uh, US sanctions have been lifted there. So oil prices seem like they could stay low for quite some time. So it will be interesting to see how BHP plays this because they've had a number of um, iffy investments, haven't they, um, over the last decade. There's, there was quite some concern about the $135 billion in profits they've made since 2004. And whilst they've paid about $8 billion back to shareholders through dividends, there's quite some concern that the accompanying returns have been very small on, on such a large uh, profit-making opportunity as, as having $123 million, billion to play with. If you look back to the uh, to the Billiton deal, um, effectively they, they've sold off a, a lot of those assets that they acquired from Billiton, the uh, South 32 spin-off. Um, so I think there was, uh, I can't recall how much losses, but I, I don't think there was a, a terrible lot of uh, gains made, made from that. So, uh, you know, so I guess it's sort of questionable. Um, some of those uh, investments, um, they've, you know, they've in the past, they've had massive write-ups with Teddy up in P&G. So, you know, but then on the other hand, though, they've kind of got it right in, in, in a lot of ways because they've, um, at one point, uh, they were the world's largest resource company, you know. So now I think they're, uh, I think if you look at the share market value, I, I think they're uh, well down the list. Um, so, you know, just on, on the ASX. We're talking with Kevin Morrison, journalist from Argus Media, who's also doing his master's in, on resource rent taxes at the Institute for Sustainable Futures uh, at UTS in Sydney. So, Kevin, let's switch over to uh, a discussion about this uh, this. This paper you're preparing, A Tale of Two Taxes, A Study of Resource Rent Taxation in Australia. And it's very interesting, uh, this work, as you're comparing the the complexity of implementing a resource rent type tax and looking at the failure of the Labor government's uh, resource super profits tax that was then followed up by the minerals resource rent tax. But there was another resource tax that really has snuck under people's guard. What uh, was it and, and why do you think this one was more widely accepted by the business community? What you're referring to is the petroleum resource rent tax. Uh, that, that first came in during the, uh, the time that uh, Bob Hawke was uh, Prime Minister and Paul Keating was his treasurer. It was uh, 1988, uh, so we're talking now over 20, where are we now, 27 years, 28 years. Australia has had a resource rent tax uh, for, for that period. Um, it hasn't, I guess, uh, caused the excitement that the um, RSPT did. But back in the, in the day when it was first debated, I'm talking about 1984, this is when there was consultation between the, the Hawke government and the, 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 the oil and gas industry. Now, 
while it got accepted, it wasn't welcomed with open arms by, by the oil and gas sector. In fact, they made very similar noises to, to, to what we heard from, from the, the mining community, um, i.e. Uh, the Rio Tinto, BHP, uh, Minerals Council of Australia, to the, uh, the RSPT. Uh, you know, back then, the, the oil and gas industry said, look, you know, it's going to be the end of the world. Nobody's ever going to invest in uh, Australia's upstream oil and gas sector. It's going to make it uneconomic. Uh, compared to the rest of the world, you know these were these were the the messages that was coming out. Yet, by this resistance, the the government managed to, to get it through. Now, what seems to be the difference? Why that seemed to work, uh, and the uh, the RSPT stroke MRRT didn't work was because the first of all the the Hawke government had made this the the ALP policy since uh, 1977 uh, so we're now talking over 40 years so it's you know the, there is quite a history of resource rent tax in, in Australia and so everybody knew that this was uh, this was the labor party platform the the oil and gas sector knew that this is what they were looking at so you know there was no no big surprise but the by the end of the day they they just had to sit down and talk to each other and uh, and work something out and that pretty much that's what happened and it, and it took two years really uh, from the first consultations um, there was a series of, uh, of discussion papers there was more meetings uh, it, it just it just went on now if you compare that to, to what happened in, in the RSPT there seemed to be very little uh, consultation uh, and in fact you know the if we cast our minds back to the 2007 election, there, there, there was no discussion about um, you know, any uh, resource rent tax or, or any uh, major tax reform at, at that. Uh, you know, that. That election was pretty much fought on, well, it's, you know, it's time for a change, and, and, um, and uh, you know, uh, Rudd was the, uh, the new man, and he was uh, um, seeing you know, people were in favour of uh, the sign on to the Kyoto Protocol and, and other you know, progressive uh, issues that the, the electorate at, at the time wanted. So there was no discussion about uh, tax. The, the whole thing with the tax, the, the, the RSPT really it had its uh, genesis in the, uh, in the 2020 gathering in Canberra in, in early uh, 2008. And then Ken Henry was told to, to get on and, and you know, look into the, um, the, the tax reform of, of um, the, the Australian tax system. And it, it, was, a, it was a very comprehensive report, um, and it, was, it, it came up with a lot of the, uh, the ideas that you're, you're interested, Carl, you know, with you know, rent tax for, for land and, and um, road pricing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, re- really good uh, material in there to, to think about some serious uh, tax reform. And, and one of those was that was uh, the uh, was extending the resource rent tax to to the mineral industry. The, uh, this is what the the whole Keating government had also looked at back in the um, back in the 80s, and, and they sort of quickly turned, well, look, you know, in order to get out through, you're going to have to, to do a deal with the states because uh, under our constitution, the right to tax the the, the minerals that come out of uh, out of the ground are uh, that that sits with the states. It doesn't sit with the with, with Canberra. So um, you know, they have the right to to charge they charge royalties, um, which is um, which mainly is ad valorem, which is mainly done based on the, uh, on the value of those, uh, of those minerals that are in the ground. The difference with the mining resource rent tax, in a way, was that it adopted this, this brown tax uh, concept where companies early on could pay lower tax rates. But that ended up uh, coming back to bite the government in the short political, in the short term. A couple of sort of 
subtle differences between the uh, the brown tax and the um, the Ghana's um, version of the the resource rent tax. Uh, that is the the brown tax is is much more sort of close to um to 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 a cash flow tax it is um i guess it's 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 uh, taxing at, at a different point to to where the uh, the gano uh, resource rent tax uh, would come in and and that was quite an important feature because also under the brown tax which bear in mind when it was first Unveiled, it really wasn't sort of um, designed, I guess, or, or the, uh, the the academic behind it. He he didn't design it with the, the resources sector in mind. It was it was much more in mind for a, for a startup uh, company. Um, and so how it got then got weaved into the into the resource tax. Uh, it, it it was picked up by other academics and it was sort of molded really. Uh, and it could be applied, I guess, to, to new sort of startup minds, I guess. Uh, which, and and this is there has been a major debate about, about this, uh, and this is one of the things that I think the government struggled to to uh, to deal with in in trying to explain how, how the uh, the tax would work. Uh, the the other important thing, and this is the most critical thing, and why I didn't. Uh, get across the line was because the um, using the, uh, the the brown tax the, the government also said under the RSPT that uh, for any losses um, and often there are losses with mines uh, in in the, the first one or two years because uh, when you think about the uh, the capital and and that they've invested uh, a lot of that capital is largely borrowed so they've got to repay the uh, the banks or the lenders uh, for, for that capital that normally weighs on on any profits that that, that the mine or, or the the the, uh, the oil field or the gas field normally uh, generates in, in those first couple of years so those uh, and and then you know, if, if prices fall, then you know it's more as we're seeing now with BHP and and other resource companies, they're making a lot of losses. So, if we were to have the the RSPT right now, and it was and nothing was changed with the design, you know, you, you could be in a situation where the, the government is liable to, um, to to pay the the miners because simply they said that you know this is. This is going to be a neutral tax. Uh, we're going to be effectively a joint venture partner. Um, we're going to pay uh, 40% of any losses. And part of the problem was that uh, they were also allowed to have accelerated depreciation and that wound down the revenues that the government could spruik to the public and in the face of a marginal seats type campaign, it helped undo the good work that uh, a well-implemented minerals resource rent tax could, could deliver. Yeah, that was uh, one of the changes that occurred between the RSPT and its uh, transformation into the MRRT. You know, that was, I guess, uh, with the change of government, change of, well, change of Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, uh, was keen to, to, to get a deal done and, you know, simply just to, to get it off the political radar because, uh, you know, she didn't want to go into an election with uh, with the uh, the miners, uh, you know, in, in their high-vis uh, vest uh, around the country, um, you know, saying uh, how terrible this uh, this new tax was. So, you know, she, um, she, she was keen to get a deal done, but she wasn't in a 
I guess a strong uh, negotiating position, and uh, that's one of the things that the the miners, um, you know, who are well versed in in, uh, in extracting deals, they uh, that, that that's what it, they got out. So the also the other thing with the transition to the um, to the MRT was that they were also able to uh, to charge. You know, we just said about the depreciation, they were able to say, well, look, you know, it's it's based on market values, and we feel again we've cast our minds back to two thousand. 2010, the uh, the market values were a lot higher than what they are right now because, again, if we refer back to what we've just seen with BHP, they've been writing down the value of their 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 um, their, their assets uh, simply to to reflect the uh, the low commodity prices. So I guess in summary about the RSBT, the you know if you compare it to how the PRT, that is the Petroleum Resource Rent Tax, um, you know, a lot of it really came down to timing and, and consultation. But in talking about the Petroleum Resource Rent Tax, there's also been a lot of criticism of that in my total yeah. resource rent report. They were found to have an effective repayment rate of some 3.1% rather than the 40% they were meant to be paying. So there's a, there's a lot of massaging there that was exposed in a, a couple of different uh, Senate inquiries last year. Sam Dastiari and so forth were very prominent in ensuring the public uh, delved into how Chevron and others avoided paying uh, so much tax. Yeah, that, that, no, that, that, that's absolutely correct. I, I guess... Again, um, you know, just looking at the uh, petroleum resource rent, it's actually, you know, as a concept, I mean, it's it's a good concept because, you know, we go back to, to, to again, what, you know, your area of interest, you know, and that of uh, rent tax, uh, you know, having a rent tax on, on uh, resources, it, it seems to be a very economical way to go. But, of course, we, we've got to then sort of fit that in uh, with the accounting rules and, and you know, um, I, I guess that's a, that's a different issue, uh, and the the accounting rules that that, that uh, companies are able to to operate here, as, uh, as I guess uh, you know what was shown in, in the Senate, was uh, that they're able to, to to navigate their way around to to, to reduce the, the, the tax massively. It's kind of a separate issue to to whether the you know the PRT is a good tax or or, or not, um, because. Uh, you know, it, it could be a good tax. Uh, I mean, same as in- income tax. I mean, it's uh, income tax is uh, it's a relatively good tax. Uh, you know, it's, it's based on the the amount that the, um, the rate is based on the amount that you earn. Uh, but then some some people uh, are able to to avoid all all taxes uh, altogether because they simply can afford to to have a good lawyer and a good accountant and um, and and therefore you know reduce their tax liability. Same. Is it really though, Kevin? Because that's meant to be. One of the strengths of a resource rent tax is that you can't hide land, you can't hide these resources, but by using some of these modern um, techniques of, of the brown tax, um, of the the Garneau-type model, it, it allows this accounting um, and machination to come into play rather than the good old ad valerium tax, which is based on the, the market price of the resource at the uh, mine gate time. Type, um, arrangement. Uh, there are pros and cons for for each different mechanism. But uh, what do you see as the world's best practice in terms of having an effective resource rent tax? I think it also depends by jurisdiction because uh, I mean we're supposed to be in a, in a very advanced, sophisticated system. Uh, but yet, you know, we have all these uh, tax leakages. 
Now, if, if we were to compare to a developing country where, you know, say resources are a larger, important part of their their, their actual income, I mean, we don't have to look too far. Look at uh, Papua New Guinea. Look at um, look at Timor Leste. You know, uh, um, with Timor Leste, you've got over ninety five percent of the uh, of the tax uh, income is coming from uh, you know the resources sector, and then most of that is, is actually coming from from one particular project. So it's it's uh, it's very contingent. I don't think they they have resource rent tax up there, but they have uh, some sort of a royalty uh, system. So I think for that, because it's it's much simpler, uh, you're pretty much sort of more guaranteed to to get the income, which which is vital for for a developing country uh, with all the, uh, the the other issues that that sort of goes along with that. Um, I think for for advanced countries like Australia, I think sort of uh, providing the the tax system is is, is watertight, um, and that has to be reviewed the whole time because the, the you know the accountants and lawyers and and various people will always be looking for uh, for, for the best uh, possible path. What we've just seen is that uh, you know while um, while prices went up, while you know we, we certainly got it on the on the export uh, revenues, that wasn't sort of filtering down in terms of uh, the tax payment. I think if you look at what the revenue was earned, there's there's a, there's a bigger trajectory in the revenue earned to, to the taxable, the, the tax income that, that came from the resources sector during, during the whole mining boom period. Um, so that was simply a reflection that you know, we didn't have a tax in place that that, that reflects the, um, the the higher the, the higher commodity prices because you can get that a little bit with ad valorem royalties, but you you don't get as much in theory as as you should do with a resource rent tax. It's been an okay tax, but it hasn't you know, hasn't changed the fortunes. We haven't been able to set up a sovereign wealth fund or, or anything like that. So you know the the whole I guess that was my initial interest was what sort of legacy is this mining boom left and. Uh, to work out. <laughs> well, Kevin Morrison from UTS, thanks very much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Yeah, I'll listen to your show every week. It's great stuff for what you're doing. So there we have Kevin Morrison from UTS talking resource rents. There's more to be explored in this realm, isn't there? There is so much to um, look into. If you're an economist looking to do research in this field, please get in touch with me at renegades at earthsharing.org.au. They don't teach this stuff barely at university anymore. We've got to rekindle interest. So uh, thanks to everyone and came to our um, big short viewing on Monday. It was packed. 